glorify you, uh, to encourage others through what you're doing in our lives. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness to us, and we ask as we look to your word today that our eyes would be open, our ears would be open, not just in a physical sense, but in a uh, mental sense, that we would take in your word, that we'd understand it, that the Spirit would be able to teach us All right, we continue in our study on positional truth, seeing how important it is and how it is a major theme in the New Testament. Not, it's not a secondary theme. It's not a minor theme. It's not something that you just see in a couple verses in, in the whole New Testament, which that doesn't imply more importance or less importance the number of times it occurs. Though... It is in the New Testament a lot. It's referenced many times in our text. Um, we were looking in the Gospel of John as to how important positional truth is. We, let's begin in John 14. It says in verse 20, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is the Lord Jesus Christ talking to the disciples He's anticipating the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come from heaven and be resident on earth, which we find recorded in the book of Acts in chapter 2. It's what is officially the start of the church. Now that's the actual day, the realities of the Christian time come into effect, the indwelling of the Spirit. The placing of the believer into Christ. The placing of Christ into the believer. That's the day it took to and came into effect. But the teachings began before that time. I think everybody understands the idea of transition, right? Things, oh, there's something new is about to happen. And we want that day one launch to go well. So we're going to tell you some things ahead of time. So that everything comes off without a hitch on day of. Right? And that's what happens in the Gospel of John. We have recorded the information that the Lord Jesus Christ tells the disciples that's going to help them understand what's going to take place in this new time coming ahead. Right? So Christ says in John 14, verse 20, At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And so the first hint of things changing we find out about positional truth. Does that make us think that that is going to be a key concept in this new time? Absolutely. Absolutely. We come over to chapter 15, and we saw the, the, the metaphor of the vine and the branches, and Christ saying, abide in me, which is directly linked to positional truth. You're in him. Be at ease in that position. And there's effects from that. You can bear fruit. You can bear more fruit. You can bear much fruit. It has a positive impact down here in real time. The fruit being the fruit from the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faith. Self-control. Right? Out of Galatians 5.22. So positional truth. Abiding in Christ is the key for things being produced in your life. 
Positional truth is key in the book of the Gospel of John. We also saw in chapter 17 that there was unity. There's a positional unity that the church has. All believers from Pentecost to the rapture that can be lived out on a temporary basis when each one is thinking on that unity and who we are in Christ. And that maturity comes from that. So we saw that last week. Now I'd like to transition over to a different letter in the New Testament. And we're going to see the same thing. We're going to see that positional truth continues to be a major theme in our New Testament. It's not just, oh, Christ talked about it and then it kind of died off. You ever been in a, a launch of something new at work or or somewhere and then they, they make a big big emphasis and then it happens and then you kind of fizzled out and nothing ever comes of it it's like man that was what was the big deal about that we spent all this time preparing and then I don't hear anything about it now right that's not the case with positional truth it continues to be a major theme in the dispensation of grace and for Christians. And we find that in the New Testament. Turn to the book of Romans. Turn to the book of Romans. The letter of Paul to the Romans. He writes this from Corinth. Romans. Now, when I'm doing this, as we look at these instances, it's not... I'm not being exhaustive. If I'm not, and hopefully I'm not implying or somehow making you think that I'm being exhaustive here. I am not being exhaustive. I'm just hitting where it says in Christ or in the Lord. So there's other, if you read the whole text, you'd see other places where it implies positional truth or is talking about positional truth. I'm only looking at the ones that say in the Lord, in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So I'm just getting I'm just giving you a little snapshot through this book. Okay? But the thought or the concept is bigger than these instances. Okay? But just by looking at these instances, we see that the theme from John continues as the church starts to have some time between Pentecost and later on. So as we said, for those entering in, we saw in the Gospel of John that positional truth would be a main theme of the dispensation of grace. Christ prophesies it. He says, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, the Father is in, I am in the Father, and that you are in me. I might not have got that exactly right. Okay? If you guys know it, you can read it. You can correct me. And then he goes on in a chapter later to say, if you're not abiding in me, not only in me, but you can abide in me, and if you abide in me, you could bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit. You can have a unity. There will be a unity, and you can have unity. There's a maturity that comes from this through being in this one thing. Okay, these are all so positional truth at the at the first transitional information leading up to the dis, the dispensation of grace. Positional truth plays a leading role, thought wise. And it doesn't fizzle out. You don't really see it in the book of Acts because the book of Acts is a history. That it's not a doctrinal book per se. 
there's doctrine in it, but it is telling you what happened. So you don't see the laying out of positional truth in the book of Acts. So maybe you think, oh man, what Christ talked about, it was just like, oh, not a big deal now. Kind of like we see transitions in our professional workplaces. They say, oh, we're going to have a change of this software, or this, and you know, and they ramp up and they tell you all this information. And then the day of uh, uh, implementation happens and you're like, why'd they tell me all that? It's that we're not even using it. It's not even important. That was a waste of time. That's not the case with positional truth. It is a leading concept. It's a main theme throughout the New Testament. So we come to the book of Romans. And we, I'm going to show you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight main places. Okay? Where it is directly mentioned. Okay? Eight places in 16 chapters. Is that throughout the book? Yes, it's throughout the book. Okay, I didn't break it down by words or anything like that. But you have 16 chapters in the book of Romans. And it's we have eight explicit statements concerning positional truth. Each kind of looking at a different concept related to positional truth. So it's saying, positional truth relates to this, and it relates to this, and it relates to this, and then talk about it. Basically, the whole book is related to positional truth. Okay? In fact, many people have said the book of Romans is a kind of a, a doctrinal statement on salvation. I don't know if I would go that far. But it is a lot about salvation. A lot about our salvation. Look in chapter 3. Well, before we, you can turn to chapter 3, but while you're looking there, we're going to see that we have redemption in Christ in 3.24. We have grace in Christ in 5.2. We have resurrection life in Romans 6.11. There's no condemnation in Romans 8.1. In 39, there's no separation from the love of God because we're in Him. There's a body that has diversity and unity it has a diversity of use and purpose, but a oneness at the same time. That's in Christ. We have a boast that's in Christ in chapter 15. And in chapter 16, you have all kinds of statements about our relationship to others in the Lord. And you see Paul relating to believers in Rome, as that he's writing to, in relationship, hey, we're united in the Lord. We're in the Lord. And he gives greetings to them based on that relationship. So in 3.24, let's actually read. Let's, why don't we just back up? And because it's, it re, it's relevant to this redemption, um, let's read from verse 10. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, that's quite a dismal statement, isn't it? Mankind seeks to be righteous. Man, we want to be righteous. We want to be right. Have you ever some, has it heard somebody arguing with somebody else and they know they're wrong, but they just don't want to admit that they're wrong? They just want to prove that they're right. Even if they have to be wrong, to prove that they're right in this point, even though they're wrong. 
I'm right. I never admit I'm wrong. I never apologize. I never, I was right. And I'm going to prove I'm right. And I'll lie to do it. You ever known anybody like that? Just argumentative. Black is white. White is black. Up is down. Down is up. And they'll argue it. You think that's absurd. But there are people, you know people like that. Right? Man seeks to be righteous. But we see here in 310, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. Well, I don't, people don't read this. Right? You ever heard of the Seekers Church? Right? The Seekers Church? Now, you have them all over the United States. They Did they read this verse? There's none seeking after God. I don't know what care what you tell me. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does Kindness, no, not one. Except for this guy I was talking to this week. He, uh, he was, uh, he was a seeker. That's how. That's exactly what you'll hear from people. This. Do you believe the revelation of God or not? It says there's none that seeketh after God. So whatever the person in front of me is telling me, they're not seeking after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does kindness, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of ass, which I believe is a kind of snake, I guess, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and a way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What this is saying is the law, the whole world was not under the law. Only Israel was under the law. But the fact that all Israel was guilty proves that all the world would be guilty if they were under it. That's what this is communicating. Oh, it was like God was using Israel as a test case to show nobody's righteous. Verse 20, Therefore, by the works of law, there shall no flesh be declared righteous in his sight. For by the law is in full experiential knowledge of sin. A lot of people don't understand this. It's actually very intuitive. We all know this from experience. You make a rule... And we say, I didn't want to do it before you had the rule, but now that you made the rule, I want to do that thing. I want to break it. We're all naturally rule breakers because of our sin natures. That's what this verse is talking about. Through law is a full experience. We're all sinners before you have a negative rule, but then the sin nature is empowered by negative rules. That's what this verse is communicating. You put it together with other verses and it's very clear. 
namely number chapter 7. For by law is a full expression of knowledge of sin. But now, a righteousness of God without law is made plain, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even a righteousness of God which is through faith concerning Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there's no difference. He just told you why there's no difference. We're all sinners. They're all guilty. For all sinned and keep coming short of the glory of God. Now he doesn't explain this all sinned here, but he will in chapter 5. We all sinned in Adam. We all sinned at one point in time. We all, we all would have done the exact same thing that Adam did if we were put in that same... Don't put that on me. That was Adam. Well, God says, all you can't get good fruit from bad fruit, can you? And where did we all come from? We all came from Adam. So through seminal imputation, we all would have done the same thing. You can't say that was him, not me. If we were in that same situation, we would have done the same thing. righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what is this righteousness of God which is through Jesus' faith concerning Jesus? What is this righteousness that you get through believing a message about Jesus Christ? What is this right? It's an imputed righteousness that we are bestowed by being in Christ. Through being set free through the redemption. We're, we're bestowed righteousness, righteousness through a redempt through a being loosed, completely unloosed. That's what this redemption is. We're completely freed from the penalty of the sin nature in Christ. We're completely set free from the slavery of this nature in Christ. Why? Because we're righteous in Him. He doesn't say we're sinners in Christ. We're righteous in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to Him. And so we don't have that sin. It's on Him. And His righteousness is on us. positional truth, folks. It's an important concept in the dispensation of grace. It's not just new truth that Christ talked about and it was never implemented. It was implemented and its purpose is for us to abide in him. Well, how do we abide in him? Is it a cold place? No, it's a warm, warm place. We're righteous. We're righteous. That should warm you up be abided in. Hey, this is a place I'll come in and get comfortable. Right? That's why, why am I using that, me that metaphor of a warm, welcoming house? It's cold out! Anybody notice this week? It's like 20 degrees out there. 14 degrees. It's cold inside. You turn on a fire. I don't even want to be in this cold house. Turn on a fire. I like to be here. What if you wake up in the morning and 
and uh, you turn to your spouse and your spouse says, that make you want to be there? Yesterday, you didn't do the dishes. You didn't clean up after yourself. Does that make you comfortable being there? Or does that make you uncomfortable? It makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? What if you wake up and the person looks at you and says, oh man, yeah, your breath stinks, but man, you sure, you know, you don't look too bad. Got morning breath. Man, yesterday was a nice day. You were, you were so kind. You really, you know, I wasn't feeling good, but you kind of picked up the slack. That was really nice of you. Does that feel welcoming? Yeah. You feel at ease? Is that somewhere you want to settle down? Yeah. That's what positional truth is. We have a place that we can settle down and be at ease. We're at God's right hand and the Father looks at us and says, You're righteous. You're redeemed. Is that comfortable? Does it feel like he wants you there? Or is that like, you know, we got a lot to do down there on earth. Get out of here. Get to work. set free through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being declared righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That redemption is looking at the fact that we're set free from our sin nature in all ways. Okay? We're set free in Christ. We're free to serve. We're not under the penalty of sin anymore. Okay? Beautiful thing something to set our minds to. Jump over to chapter 5. Now again, you could read through the whole context because it's that's a major argument in that chapter. So the whole chapter relates to that verse, doesn't it? Let's turn to chapter 5. Now, actually let's look back in chapter 4 because it rolls right into chapter 5. If you notice in verse 24, you might think, because I said it was in chapter 3 that he talked about righteousness, that it doesn't happen in chapter 4. And so there's no positional truth in chapter 4. I told you I'm just focusing on the where it says in Christ. But look here. Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again. Because of our justification. That justification is, again, the very same justification that he talked about previously. We're righteous. And he was raised on high so he could establish a position that we could be seen to be in him and then be declared righteous. See? We come to chapter 5. Therefore, because of that, being declared righteous through faith, or out from faith, when were we declared righteous? When we were placed into Christ. The moment we believed. The Holy Spirit immersed us into Christ. And he said, you weren't righteous. Now you're in Christ, you're righteous. 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We stand in grace. Where is the standing? The standing is in Christ. This is a positional truth. We stand in grace. And it's from that position that we have access. We have access to the Father because we're in that position, in Him, in our High Priest, Christ. And we can speak to the Father through Christ. We don't have to go to anyone else. We don't have to talk to our spouse. We don't have to talk to our... I hope you talk to your spouse. You don't have to talk to your pastor. I hope you talk to your pastor. Um, but when it comes to talking to God, we don't have to go through anybody else. Okay? That's because of our position in Christ. Again, is that something that's welcoming? Or is that, does that make you feel comfortable? Or is that like a cold home that, that you don't even want to be in? I'd say it's a welcoming place. It's a place to settle down and be at ease. Turn over to chapter 6. Now again, we're going to focus on verse 11. Because that's where we have the, the, the explicit statement of positional truth. It says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto the sin, but alive unto God, not through, but in Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a direct statement of positional truth. We're to reckon ourselves to be alive, dead unto the sin nature, down here, but alive unto God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We're alive unto God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a positional truth. You're not dead to God. You're alive to God. He sees you. He doesn't see a dead body at his right hand. He see Christ isn't laying there dead with no activity. He's alive. He's doing things. You know that? He's doing things. First John says he's an advocate for us, right? He's doing something. The book of Hebrews says that he is interceding for us. Is that something a dead person does? He's alive up there, and I'm alive in him. statement. Now, as we said before, positional truth is all through this book. If you read back, you go back to verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. If you're baptized into Christ, what's that talking about? Is that talking about some figurative thing? You come in the church and so you're coming into Christ? Is that some kind of figurative thing, you know, 
Uh, Christ is good, so if you do good, you're baptized into Christ because I did good. Those are all baloney that I just said. When it says you're baptized in Christ, that's what it means. We were put into Christ. How? By a work of the Holy Spirit. Where is Christ? He's at the Father's right hand. So we were put into Christ at the Father's right hand by the Holy Spirit the moment we believe the gospel. That's what this is talking about. Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into that death, that like as Christ was raised up from dead ones by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So we should live differently now because we are in Christ. And we're accounted to have participated in his death, burial, and resurrection. God says that work, he counts it to us. It's all positional truth. Verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body pertaining to the sin nature might be rendered inoperative. It might be put out of business. That henceforth we should not serve sin. So this is positional truth becomes practical. It's how we Stop being slaves down here to our base desires. It's through positional truth. Turn to chapter 8. We read in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hope this is this might get redundant, but hopefully not boring. All right. We are in Christ Jesus. Josh, why are you so excited about positional truth? It's just that's just theology for the pastor and for uh, people that like to read the Bible a lot. It's not for the average Christian, which I disagree with all of everything I just said. I don't believe that there's average Christians. I don't believe that that's the correct way to be communicating with people. Okay? The idea that there's a clergy class and a laity class. Those are baloney statements when people talk like that. We're the body of Christ. We're the church. Everyone is a servant in the church. Everyone has a spiritual gift. All of us are ministers. There is no the ministry. Okay. When I went into the ministry, and whenever anybody says that, you think, oh, it's a pastor. Every Christian goes into the ministry when the ministry when they get saved. Okay? We're all in the ministry. And when you let people get away with that, you're making light of Anybody that's not a pastor or a missionary. Okay? We are all in the ministry. Every one of us. Okay? So when I say there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, how precious is in Christ truth? It's not just for 
theologians or Bible college students or missionaries or pastors. It's for all Christians. It should be cherished truth, and it's important. There's a reason why Paul puts it in here. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's because Christians need to get this through their heads. There's a lot of Christians that live defeated lives because they're always self-judging. They're always self-judging and afraid of condemnation. Whether it's from themselves or from something they've been inundated with by their families or by their, it could be through your spouse, it could be through the world system. We're constantly being judged, aren't we? But this is looking at ultimate judgment. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a precious statement, right? And you can see how dangerous that statement is in Satan's perspective because you have it completely obliterated by the translators. They brought in a statement from verse, I believe it's three or four, yeah, verse 4. They bring up a statement from verse 4 and they insert it into verse 1. And they completely obliterate the meaning that was intended in verse 1. They try to make it a conditional statement on our behavior. There's no condemnation if you're good. But if you're bad, condemnation! <laughs> That's not what it says. It doesn't say to those who walk not after the flesh but after. It says, there's no. it's a statement. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, no condemnation. And just to prove it, when you get to the end of the chapter, it's reiterated in a different way. If you didn't get it by reading the beginning of the chapter. Look at the end of the rest of the book, the rest of the chapter. Let's look, let's read from... can read from verse 28 it says and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn above many brethren moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also justified and whom he justified them he also glorified what shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us and I just, right there I hear an echo. Somebody, who can be against us? Silence, right? Who? You just hear the who. Who? 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 If God is for you, who's lining up against him? Nobody. Nobody can line up against God. It's, it's laughable. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Did he raise us on high to his right hand to just condemn us? He rose us to the ultimate position of privilege for a purpose. Right? 
Does the dad care and for for his children and raise them up and teach them right and wrong and protect them from, from danger? To just slit his throat when he turns 18? That's laughable. Oh, it's not laughable. It's a horrible grisly scenario, isn't it? It's not in keeping with the rest of the story. We've been raised on high to the Father's right hand. He's, right? Who is against us? If he did all this for us, what else is he going to give us? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that declares righteous. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, he rather is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God and is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or some situation? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This takes you full circle from the first verse of the chapter, doesn't it? Not only is there no condemnation, but nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We're in the beloved. That's another verse that's on positional truth. What does that mean to be in the beloved? Uh, when you say the beloved, it's the one who is loved. He is the object of love from God the Father. And we're in him. If you're in the one being loved, you're the recipient of that love. You see that? So we are in Christ and we can't be separated from him. And we can't be separated from the love of the Father because we're in him. Again, positional truth is embedded all the way through the New Testament. The New Testament is pregnant with positional truth. If the New Testament was a, was a woman that was pregnant, the baby would be positional truth. <laughs> I'm beating a dead horse, okay? Positional truth is all through the New Testament. It's not a minor truth. It is a key truth. Turn to chapter 12. Now, in chapter 12, you have the concept of the body of Christ. You have the diversity in a unity, and that's positional truth. That's positional truth. We'll get there. Okay, but I want to start in verse 1. It says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, accept, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, it's not explicitly stated here, but it's implied. This is talking about your priestly service as a Christian. Every believer is a priest, and we can do the work of a priest because what? Why are you a priest? You're a priest because you're in Christ. So verse 1 
is related to positional truth. All right? If you're not in Christ, you have no functioning as a priest. Be not conformed to this age, but be ye transfigured by the renewedness of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now again, here you have positional truth, not explicitly stated, but it's implied. Because what are you going to do with this renewed mind so that you don't be a conformer, you be transformed instead of conformed? You're going to set your mind on things above! <laughs> so positional truth is in verse 2. Not explicitly, but it's implied. Verse 3, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Guess what that word soberly is? Salvation-minded. Salvation-minded. That's a pretty broad concept. Past, present, future salvation According as God hath dealt to each man a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same practice. So we're not all the same. We're not all doing the same thing. We're not all the left hand. We're not all the right hand. We're not all the mouth. We're not all the eyes. We're not all the ears. We're not all the left foot. Honestly, a human body, is there some part of the human body that you're like, oh, that's impressive? Right? No, there's not. Anything by, if you just cut off a hand and you laid it on the ground, nobody's impressed by a hand. Well, maybe a doctor that studied and is amazed by the biology of it all and all that. Okay. <clears throat> but you take an ear and you cut an ear and you lay it down and you go, it's an ear. It's kind of worthless now. It's not connected to the head. You take, take a foot. Foot's amazing if you look at all, you know, the muscles and the ligature and all that stuff. It's amazing. But by itself, you say, it's worthless now. It's not connected to the leg. Right? The usefulness and amazingness of a human body is when all the parts work together and are used by a personality, a person that resides in that body. Everybody understand? And what this truth teaches through this metaphor of a human body is that we, as believers, are tools. This hand is a tool for me. I'm the personality that makes that hand do things. When my hand does things, you go, Josh, your hand just did this, that, or the other thing. Your hand is amazing. No, you say, Josh, you did that. Right? In like manner, the body of Christ, true Christians, are the tools of Christ. We are his body. The body isn't amazing. It's that person that resides in that body and uses its, his body to accomplish things. So who gets the credit? 
The person. Who's the person? Christ. Isn't that an interesting concept? It is. It's a beautiful thing. Are you a useful tool? Are you a hand, an eye, an ear, or whatever it is? It allows the person that you are in to utilize you. That'd be it's kind of a absurd thought, isn't it? To think of your hand. Hey, hand, do this, do that, whatever, and it, it's like disobeying me. <laughs> right? We don't have to deal with that. A hand should automatically obey me. Right? It should automatically do what I want it to do. Because it's my hand. See? That's how absurd carnality is in the Christian life. It's a beautiful, the, the, the use of a human body is a beautiful metaphor of the body of Christ. Maybe you can think of it on the opposite side when people happen to mess up with their body and they're like, I can make it right. It doesn't do what it's supposed to. That's because it's broken. It's not making the way it's supposed to. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful metaphor. It really is. All right. Let's continue to read. Verse 5, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. So the idea of diversity and unity are part, are the two main concepts in the metaphor of the human body in reference to the body of Christ. We are diverse. We have different functions. We can look at diversity from a lot of different perspectives, and a lot of them are true. But there's a unity in the diversity. There's a unity in the diversity. What's the unity? We're all connected to Christ. And Christ, we're trying to get direction from one source. Nourishment from one source. Right? Accomplishing one purpose. We're not all individually doing our own purpose. We have one purpose coming from our, that personality that's in the body. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let it be prophecy according to the proportion of faith, or serving, let us wait on our service, or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation, he that gives, let him do it with simplicity, he that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, and it goes on. So that Positional truth is going to be linked to the outworking down here on earth, you see, in your service. So that positional truth is just a waste of time, right? It doesn't matter. You just need to start serving. No. What I read here is that what you think about who you are in Christ and your relationship to other believers in Christ at the Father's right hand is going to affect your service down here. Not only in what you do, but how effective you are. And you're thinking of how you think about other people in the body of Christ. It's going to matter. Turn to chapter 15. Now, chapter 15, 
read verse 15 through 17 it says nevertheless brethren I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God grace that concept of grace has been really consistent through the book it's hit very closely to the verses we've been hitting kind of interesting that I should be the minister the priestly people work of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable being sanctified or having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit I have therefore whereof I made boast in Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God try to state me here right I have a boast in Christ Jesus an interesting statement what do you think Paul means by that you think he's saying look what all I did no I think he's saying look what the Lord did through me I'm in Christ and I'm boasting in him I think it's going back to his position here it's because I'm abiding in Christ it's because I'm in him it's because I have grace it's because I'm redeemed in him it's because I have I stand in grace it's because I'm in the body of Christ that I do this for these believers. The boast isn't in me, it's in Christ. It's against that theme, be continuing on. Let's jump over to chapter 16. Now, again, might be redundant, but it's not boring. Notice here as we come to chapter 16, and Paul writes, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church which is at Centuria, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatever business she hath need of you, for she hath been a an organizer of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers, in Christ Jesus. A lot of people, they read this and they think, oh, it's no big deal. They're just greetings. You know, it's just like when you say sincerely at the end of a letter. I don't think this is just, you know, fitting in here. He's putting in the here to be polite address. It, these statements are there for a reason. It, it kind of puts a big old capital, you know, a big old emphasis, a big old exclamation point after this whole letter. He's saying... We're redeemed together in Christ. He's saying we're standing in grace together in Christ. We're in the body where we all have different purposes and we're doing different things, but we have a unity in Christ because we're doing these things for one another. And you can have a boast in Christ too through the, about the things that God does through you because you can be a useful tool for Christ. And Paul here kind of... <coughs> honors these other Christians hey we're in Christ together we're in the Lord we're in Christ he uses both through here and I, those things are he, those are there for a reason he's emphasizing something different which he, each one of those statements we're in the glorified resurrected anointed one Jesus Christ or he's saying hey you're in the Lord either he's saying this person needs to remember he's the Lord that he's in charge, 
Or are you saying it for other people's benefit? There's a reason. There's some reason. And why it says Lord instead of Christ. But they're in that position. The Lord is the same person who is Christ. Christ is the same person who is Lord. He could use either title. It's the same individual. But he used that title for a reason in this communication. So we read in verse Continue to read down through here. Um, I'm not sure where we stop. Let's read verse four. Who have who have for my life, my life laid down their own necks, talking about Aquila and Priscilla, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well beloved Epinetus. Uh, it's kind of interesting. How it, anyway. Who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ? Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. It's kind of an interesting statement there about these guys being apostles that we hardly even know. Now, some people will try to explain this away and say, oh, they weren't really apostles. Um, I think it's very possible these guys could be apostles. They're called apostles. <laughs> think that's possible? Um, why do we got to explain it away? Just because they're not prominent people that we know a lot about. Um, greet Amphilus, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane. Our helper in Christ and Stachys, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them who are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Salute Trephina and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis. Who labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus. And all the saints who are with them salute one another with a fond, with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, and it goes on, mark them. We could read all the way down. Verse 20, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. Amen. And then you have, you could continue on. It doesn't explicitly say in Christ, but verses 24 and 26 actually have a lot to do with being in Christ. The grace gospel is absolutely includes positional truth. If you jump over here, it says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, this is not the gospel of initial salvation. 
It absolutely is not. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, or the preaching concerning Jesus Christ, according to the revelation from a mystery, which is kept secret since eternal times, but now is made manifest by the scriptures of the prophetic writings, or by the prophetic writings, according to the commandment of the eternal God, made known to all Gentiles for obedience from faith, to God only wise, is glory through Jesus Christ into the ages. Positional truth is throughout the New Testament. It's throughout the book of John. Well, not throughout the book of John. It's all through from chapter 14 and chapter 17 in the upper room discourse. It's all through the book of Romans, as we just saw. It's a main theme, not a minor theme. It is a main theme. And it is a main concept that the New Testament Christian needs to understand and utilize in his or her daily life. So close with word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you that the emphasis on scripture is to get our thinking right so we can you can then act through us and thus we would have correct action. It's only correct when you do the work through us. And so, Father, we would be ones that would oppose just morality or being good, you know, with, with air quotation marks. We would be ones that desire to have you do a work through us. And it would be you, the one, getting the glory from that. We just thank you for who you are, Father, and the privilege you've extended to us in these things. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Before you get into your subject, I thought you said it was the Probably was breaking out um, uh, condemnation and all separation is two things. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Do you get to stay or do you have to? Oh, I'm staying. Okay, I didn't know if you had to go help. No.